and welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. My name is Justin Landon, and I'm back as always, and I have a special guest tonight. I don't normally have a co-host, but I have one tonight. His name is Jared Shuren. He is the uh, owner and editor of the web magazine Porno Kitsch and the owner, publisher, editor of Jurassic London. Welcome, Jared. Thanks, Justin. Uh, our guest tonight, which we're very excited about, is Drew McGarry. He's a columnist for Deadspin, GQ, and other places. He won Chopped. He's a Chopped champion. He's a, and an author. He wrote the novel The Postmortal, also known as The End Specialist in the United Kingdom, and a nonfiction book called Someone Could Get Hurt About Parenting. He's also been published in Rolling Stone, Comedy Central, New York uh, Times, ESPN, Yahoo, Playboy, The Wire, et cetera, et cetera. And his newest novel, The Hike, is out August 2nd. Welcome, Drew. Thank you, sir. I want to more about the porno kitsch. Is it literal porno kitsch, or like are there? Is it like little dolls that are nude and stuff like that? I'll tell you what. I will explain that if you can explain the whole concept of chopped to me, because I completely <laughs> right. miss that. All right, I, J- Justin, can I can I explain it to Jared real quick? You explain chopped, and then we're going to insist on Jared explaining his pornography. Yes, there we go. Okay, so all right, chopped is it's a it's a game show. All right. That's all. I just think of it as a game show, but with cooking. And there are three rounds and four contestants. So someone gets someone gets eliminated in every round. But every round they have to cook something. And what they have to cook is something out of a basket that has mystery ingredients in it. So they open the basket and they have to cook whatever's in the. They have to cook something using everything in the basket. And they don't they don't do friendly stuff. Like there'll be like a wheel of brie and like a live eel. <laughs> and like a pack of gummy bears, and you and you and you have to make dessert. So like like stuff like, like horrible stuff like that. So I went on that, and I and I I won because I'm awesome. That's the deal. Now tell me about tell me about the the kitschy porno. Is it just like a big John Waters shrine? Like yes, I'm, it's not quite that late for me to confess that just yet. No, just a simple website that you know, covers a bit of geekery, a bit of pop culture, everything in between. Um, but, the, the the name is just really, really unfortunate. And <laughs> Do pe- so then are people, are people either disappointed or are they like, Hey man, I, I want, I want to go at work. We've had oh, this happen. It's been at work where they're like, they're like, I want to go to work, but you put an F word in the headline. Jerk. <laughs> we are, we are definitely blocked from uh, better professional establishments. Um, <laughs> and our, our Google searches are terrible. We had for for a while we had a um just a picture of our house cat up there. And we took it down because so many people were finding our website with a combination of search words search words that were like porn, cat, house, carpet. <laughs> I, I mean, do what you want, but leave our pet out of it. So um, you know, it's it's got its ups and downs. Um, it's like the world. It's like the world. It's like the one bad uh, HBO real sex segment. <laughs> there's always <laughs> there's always one segment of the show that's really unappealing, and it's <laughs> well, it's time for porno kitsch. You know, <laughs> these people, <laughs> these elderly people, like to get naked and go inner tubing. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> you should see their china. <laughs> um, can I ask one one more question about Chopped? Uh, yes, of that, course. So, is it the sort of thing that like? Were you really good at it because you're a really good cook or because you are just really good at doing weird crap with everything that's left in the fridge? Or is it a combination of the two? Well, I mean, generally it's a, it's a competition for professional chefs and I was a fan of the show and the way I got on was they were, they were going to do an amateurs episode 
and I freaked out and I and I posted my application <laughs> on Deadspin. Nice. And and then and then people Deadspin read it, and then the producers read it and then they had and then they they put me on. And the reason I won, honestly, I, you know, because we were all amateurs, so all I had to do was have the other three like fuck up badly enough <laughs> you know? like like where it's just process of elimination well drew you're the least worst but no i i'm i i mean i think i can say without arrogance that i'm i'm okay at cooking and and the other thing was that and i and i said this when i was on the show like i really i have 30 minutes to to make dinner for my family every night and uh and a lot of times it's just whatever happens to be there you know so i i will be forced to throw something together my mom was always good with leftovers too so any sort of, you know, I, I, it's not that big of a deal for me to cook in a very tight time frame with, with people who, and I told the judges, I was like, I was, I said to the judges, I was like, you're never going to be as mean to me as my kids are about my food. So, <laughs> or as your dead spin commenters. Yeah. Or, yeah. Right? Or commenters. Commenters will yeah. just be just, just unreal. <laughs> Zagarian's got nothing on the dead spin comment. Nothing, sure. nothing. And you know, it's great. It really is like, because I, when I won, it was cool that I won, but of, course, but of course, I wore an ugly shirt, and that's all that anybody took away. All I ever get is a, a gif of me doing the fucking thumb dance with that shirt. So I've got to ask about this. I, I tweeted earlier today, like, hey, I'm having Drew on the show. What should I ask him? And you retweeted it. And these all these assholes, come, all they care about is your shirt. No, no, they're great. That's great. I'm, it's totally fine. They, everyone groups <laughs> on me about the shirt, and it's, it's really, it's genuinely... It's genuinely amusing because I, I, you know, I would rather, I would honestly, we, and we talk, I've talked about this with, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of people I work with where media is tends to be very insular and it tends to be very self-congratulatory. So when media people move to new jobs or when they get hired to do something else or when they die, like it's like media people automatically all jump into a canoe at the same time to congratulate one another or to pay tribute to one another. Oh, well, Slively Dickweed at the Daily Mail was the nicest guy I ever worked with. And uh, and honestly, like it's I would rather just spend all my day online getting having people, you know, crying Jordan me with a with a stupid striped polo shirt. <laughs> so I have to I have to ask then is, is Slively Dickweed your code name for Bill Simmons or <laughs> Pretty much. That that sounds that sounds accurate. All right. So more seriously, um, you cover sports to some degree. I mean, you're not you're a reporter, but you're a you're a commentator of sports and other things. Hey, I do I do report. I mean, if they send me to report, I'll report. I do. So you so you so you cover sports properly. Cover sports. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? You're right. I don't <laughs> I don't. Sit you're you're totally right. Um. But then you turn around and you you write science fiction, or in the case of your newest book, I, I kind of like a gonzo fantasy, contemporary yes. fantasy. That'd be right. uh, how much do your worlds overlap? Like, do you run into any of these colleagues who are like, "Hey, Drew, saw the science fiction book." I mean, is that like a thing that happens? Well, I think it's just sort of a net, like, um, like I like I said, I think I I told you earlier, like it's it's weird because my, yeah, I traffic generally in sports, and then it was like it was weird with Postmortal because I had written a sci-fi book. And it was like, hey, sports people that like those are my connections. It's like, hey, sports people I know. How about some sci-fi? You know, and and it's it's a little bit weird because I have this sort of I have this network I can draw on to help uh, you know pimp a book and horror book, but uh, you know it's it's not quite it's it's not quite the perfect overlap, is it? So 
Um, you know, I think I think people, of course, have diverse interests, and people who like sports will also like books and stuff like that, and people who like books also like sports. They're not mutually exclusive, but um, it is, you know, just from a boring marketing standpoint, it is always very clear to me that, you know, I, I need to make inroads with a certain type of community in order for people to get interested in the book and, and enjoy it and, and have fun with it. So the the new book's a little bit more, I mean, I, I'm going to use the term mainstream. It's not really what I mean, but like, it's, it's not as deeply, you know, genre. It's, it's much more in a tradition of contemporary fantasy, which is more widely read than uh, just straight science fiction. Um, but do you do you read in the genre much? I mean, are you do you dabble in science fiction fantasy? Are you reading Game of Thrones or anything like that? Or are you? I'm actually I'm actually awful. I'm genuinely awful. I I tried reading Game of Thrones, and this is not like a, like this is not like a nerd thing. I like I played D and D as a kid. Um, I loved Harry Potter. Um, you know, I, I liked fantasy. I loved Conan movies. I watched them with my brother when I was a kid. I I could not get into the Game of Thrones books, and I don't. I don't know why. I almost, I almost felt bad about it. I was, you know, 70 words in and 70 pages in, and he was like, oh, it was a fine quick sword. And I was like, oh, fuck this. I don't want to deal with it. And I just, I couldn't get into it. And I, I really, to this day, I, I don't know why. I think, I'm pretty sure I'd like the TV show if I watched it, but I just haven't gotten into it. And the other thing is that I like those genres. I think, uh, I think it's okay. That my preferred reading tends to be in nonfiction, a lot of history. Um, anything about people getting shipwrecked is usually big for me. And it's almost better if I can, if I have those influences going into a different genre, because it makes that genre sound a little bit different from everything else, you know? I think if all you read was, you know, The Sword of Shannara 900 times, if you write a book, it's going to sound like The Sword of Shannara, you know? Or right, I just point out that Justin has. So, so I have not read it 900 times, although I did write an extensive essay on your site, Jared, about um, how important this sort of genre was to my formative years my uh, brother, as a child. But. My brother is an enormous fantasy reader and has read just, just, just anything, anything with a dragon on the cover, anything with a sword on the cover, he has read. And, I'm for, and I have not picked up quite that habit, I would say. But I don't like people who piss and moan about it or, 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 or get all like all high horse about nerds and shit like that. Cause that's not, that's not how I roll. Yeah. What's, what's most interesting. I've actually found, you know, I, I live in two worlds as well. You know, I've, I've been an athlete my whole life and I'm also a huge dork, but I actually find that in many cases, the sports world is more accepting of my nerddom than nerddom is of my sports world, which I find fascinating, but yeah, that could be. And I think, you know, I think nerd culture has gotten sort of warped and weird over the years where, um, you know, it's just sort of splintered into two. It's like there's, you know, there's the obvious mainstream nerd culture where people are watching Avengers movies and that's not really nerd stuff anymore. That's just basic sort of popular taste. And then, but then there's also sort of sub nerds and, you know, split factions and, you know, crazy ass Redditors and, you know, but nerds who aren't so charming, but are just sort of like <laughs> sort of like deeply unappealing people, you know. And it's 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 splintered so much that the term really doesn't mean much anymore. I don't think I don't think nerd and geek mean a whole lot more a whole lot anymore. Do you think that nerddom is almost a a victim of its own success? I mean, you know, if everyone's watching Game of Thrones and seeing an Avengers movie and 
wearing a Star Wars t-shirt. Does, does that make us less special? Have well, we, no, have we I, lost our alliance? Well, that's the thing. I think it's weird. It's, there's this push and pull, right? Where you like, you like something like if you can be like a band and you're, you're both happy that only you know about it. Like if it's a small band, but you kind of want everyone else to know. And then your dream comes true and they become super popular and everyone else does know about them. But then you're kind of pissed that they're not all yours anymore. And I think that happens with nerd properties too. You know, I think, you know, I think there are nerds who feel real ownership over Batman, which is insane because it's Batman. You know, it's the single most popular comic book character of all time. And it's beloved by, by literally billions of people and to claim ownership, ownership over it. Or to have 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 it want to go your specific way, or or tailored to your specific expectations of it, you know, is is completely fucking insane. Now, um, so there, I I think I think I think you can basically separate now into nerds who are reasonable and nerds who are unreasonable. And in that sense, I don't think it's different from fans of anything else, sports, music, whatever. Well, yeah, I was definitely going to point out the fact, you know, the terms of like having ownership of something. I- I'm pretty sure like every Golden State Warrior fan is like, fuck you to the world. Like, where were you guys 15 years ago? When <laughs> yeah. we were, you know? Yeah. Like, they're super happy that they're getting national attention and they're a great team, but they don't want to be lumped in with the giant come lately tech bro assholes that show up at the games and stuff like that. Not to mention the immense sense of ownership. You actually wrote about this. I think in GQ this week or last week about the whole Kevin Durant fiasco and how everybody sort of like, I think it was there. I think that's where you wrote about it, but everybody was just, has this huge ownership of Kevin Durant's decision-making, you know, like how dare you go and do this thing? Well, sports, I mean, I think nerds and sports have become sort of similar in that vein where people really want to be sort of uh, a fantasy GM of everything. You know, I think that's really true with, with like, because people know about casting decisions about films they know about who the director is going to be. They know who all the writers are. And when they're announced, they're like, no, 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 that's not right. This is, you know, X person would be better. And they're being personnel executive of that movie or whatever. So I think, I think that sort of ownership and that sort of fantasy mentality is, I think it goes across a lot of stuff. People have their own, you know, if they're not doing something on their own, they have something that they, that, they have something that they want to go a certain way, and when it doesn't, they they get pissy about it. I think there's also. I was I was just in New York last week, and what struck me that you don't have in the UK, but did have there, is that maybe fifty percent of the people on the street were wearing some sort of sports related gear, and everyone has a team. Everyone has some sort of allegiance that they they feel the need to to display, and it just it really helps you in a busy world with a lot of strangers, it really helps you immediately identify who's not on your side, you know, yeah. who are your allies in this cruel world. You know, thank yeah. God I'm if, not other Royals fan. If it's a Cowboys fan, you know, you know, it's a, a horrible person you should avoid right away. <laughs> that, exactly. Is it not, is it not true in the UK? Is sports apparel just in general, just not as pop is too busy. Is everyone too busy wearing like a, an old joy division shirt that they got like in 1985? Well, you have to strip off all the tweed. And, and it, <laughs> it is, but to the Tweed point, and dark socks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, football here or soccer is, I mean, the only almost equivalent in the U S would be like college football where it, it yes. runs so deep and the hatred is so pure that 
most people are actually pretty restrained about, you know, you cannot wear football gear, football shirts, football strips to, uh, to work, for example. Um, I was like, they don't, they don't want to get yelled at because, because they have an Arsenal jersey on or something. Right? Exactly. That's, that's actually cool. Like, that's, that's actually, it's actually damning that I can, that I can go out in my team gear in public and not have tomatoes thrown at me. I actually feel it's probably like living in California in the like 80s and 90s, like, and nobody could wear Raiders gear because <laughs> that was, I grew up in California. You could not wear Raiders gear to any school or anything like that. It was just Raiders gear. That's all you couldn't wear. Yeah. Cause they had like NWA videos in the school. People were like, that's gang gear. Ugh. <laughs> so your first novel then specials and like, pardon me, we're going to get kind of literary dork for just a minute. Please, um, please do. I'm going to ask you to talk about, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of, the impetus behind some of your some of your fiction here. So sure. the end specialist, which is your first novel or po- the post mortal. P.S. Thank you so much for not naming your book two different things in the two major English speaking markets uh, this time around. It's just the hike everywhere. You so. know, you know, it wasn't my choice. It was it, the same thing happened with a parenting book. I it was sold different. It was sold to a different publisher in the UK, and the UK insisted on a different title. And I look, I love the UK, Jared. Like I, I'm way cool with the UK, but I, I did think it was weird that because all it did was con- create confusion. People being like, "Is this a sequel? What is this book?" And it didn't. It really didn't yeah. make any sense to me because the the it was fine. And plus, the other thing was that that my and way after the fact, my mom uh, when she saw the alternate title at the end special, she was like, "Is that a proctologist?" <laughs> so I was like, "Oh God, how did I not notice?" All I do is make butt jokes all day. I don't know is the, the butt correlation. <laughs> anyway, ask, ask away. All right. Well, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. It's the same title. It makes it a lot easier for all of us. Uh, but it seems to me like, so when you wrote The Unspecialist, I'm going to guess, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm going to guess you were kind of in your late 20s when you wrote that or, or maybe very early 30s. I wrote in 2009, so I would have been 33. 30. Right. I was 30. No, I was 32 because it was the summer of 2009. Right. Okay. So, but it's, it's very much a, a, it's obviously a book about death um, and sort of about like the, the fear of death and worrying about death and, you know, that death hangs over all of us all the time. This very much seems like to me a book that kind of springs out of somebody who's like starting a family. Those are things, those are things I never thought about until I started a family that I really started to think about those things. I mean, was that a big part of what drove you to kind of explore that territory? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, just by nature of getting older, um, you know, my my parents are getting older. They're not. They're they're alive and healthy. Right? <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna be pissed if they hear that. <laughs> like we're not dead, Drew. Uh, but I think it's just you get older and things just get more serious and death becomes a lot more prevalent because you've known more people who have passed away. You know more people who are closer to to passing away. And I've always been, uh, you know, I've always been scared of it. I've always had my issues with death. I think part of it was just me sort of trying to deal with it in my own particular way. I don't know if I'm still comfortable with it, but I do know I, I'm a, I'm someone who's very bad internalizing. So if I have a fear or I have something that I'm hung up on, it always behooves me to, to get it out in some way. And that was one of the ways that I did, but also it was just an interesting idea that I thought would, would fill up a novel back when, back when I was, um, you know, I had been laid off from a job. I didn't, I, you know, I was freelancing and hustling for money and, and I, I knew I had to do something 
big, you know, in order to help support my family. And it was really just sort of a shot in the dark that anyone would buy it. And nobody did. The 18 editors passed on it. And the only person who bought it was someone who I was hoping to be a Deadspin fan. And he, and he was like, I'll, I'll buy it. And they, they bought it for nothing. And then he actually quit his job. And it's honestly, it's a miracle it got published. And then, and now, like, now, now it's required reading at colleges and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's fucking crazy. And you were nominated for a Clark Award. Like, you might be a bigger deal in the United Kingdom for your fiction than you are in the U.S. Like, that's oh, a big award over there. Oh, and they were so, they were so mean. <laughs> I, I, you know, as, as, as mean as like Americans are on Twitter and stuff like that. You really don't. You don't have any appreciation until until you until you hear the British people being like, "Oh, she's shite," and that <laughs> just I, just openly slagging her. Oh, if you think about it, the people just shit. You know. <laughs> I do have to say, you know, that I I remember all of that quite clearly because we were talking about that sort of rare juxtaposition of fan. Um, I flipped out because I'm like, "Oh my god, it can't be the same Drew." It is. You know, very <laughs> delighted. Um. The British tradition is to be as mean as possible to all possible award nominees. So yeah, know, that's that's yeah. a rite of passage. Um, but it was it, honestly it was it was very cool because I didn't even I I'm not kidding I literally didn't know either award exists that the book was nominated <laughs> for. I was like, wow, I got nominated, and then once once it got nominated, I was like, boy, I hope it wins. And then it didn't win, and I was like, ah, shit. But I was like, wow, now I know what these awards are. <laughs> I do think at some point you you referred to someone as the Greg Easterbrook of U- UK science fiction. Uh, uh, that that's utterly possible. I totally could have said that or it, done that. It was a it was a throwaway tweet, and it was I'm pretty sure it had an audience of one person, which was me. Um, <laughs> but I, I I just want you to know that that one joke it landed you know, five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> well, then then the tweet successful. One person yes. got it. That's all that matters. The best part about this is I'm pretty sure I know that like the two people that tweeted the exact lines that Drew quoted. I don't I I I remember someone in the UK just really it was great. I mean it was genuinely like because I rip people all the time, so I have no no leg to stand on here. Uh but there was there was some UK guy going through the nominees and he's like, I'm I was talking with me mates pop about what a piece of shit it was. (laughs) Just just like really openly, like like he's he had made a lifetime out of hating the book so much, which was great. It's, it's nice to be appreciated. It is. It is. Now you've got the hike, which um, is much more of a. I use the term Gonzo fantasy. I don't know how you feel about that particular term, but yeah, I'll do that. It's uh, it, it's certainly like a, you know, it's a you know regular everyman kind of encountering all kinds of crazy shit on a on a walk in the forest. Yes. Which, which again, feels a little bit like a metaphor for adulthood. Like I imagine myself sitting on a, a treadmill, you know, kind of stuck on this path that I'm on in adulthood, trying to figure out how to get out of it and, and do something cool. Well, I I had gone a I had gone a literal hike. Uh, like the beginning of the book, there's something that pretty crazy that happens uh, just a few pages in, but everything prior to that uh, is true. Like I had gone. I had gone to go give a speech at, at some college in, in rural Pennsylvania. It was in the Poconos. Um, and they put me in some, they put me in some, uh, some inn on like a Tuesday and there was nobody there. I was the only person in the hotel. And uh, it was sort of creepy. Like it was old fashioned. Like the walls were all sort of yellowed and stuff like that. And, uh, 
And, you know, I, I asked the clerk, I was like, is there a place where I can walk? And she was like, no, not really. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Because it was like a mountain resort. I was like, that's weird. And uh, and I go out back behind the hotel and I find this path. And uh, and I start walking on it. And there's, there's nobody there. There's no joggers. There's no bikers. There's no mate. There's nobody. And I just keep walking. And it's, you know, it was just sort of weird. It was like... It was just sort of surreal. It, it seemed to me like like maybe maybe everyone else has died, and I and I'm just gonna keep walking on this forever. And that's where it that's where it began. I got home and I started writing it, and that was kind of it. Now, if I believe if I remember, my memory serves me, in the book you say that the trail that she claimed was not there was actually a marked walking trail. Is yes. that a fact or okay? Yes, that actually that is that is all literally true. Yeah. So so we had a we were talking about a a fairly. Uh, a hotel clerk who was not great at their job. No, no, utterly, utterly helpless. Because it was, it was marked, and there were like seating areas. It was like it may as well have been the I could have been the fucking Appalachian Trail for all I know, and she had no idea it was like thirty feet away from her. Or, or uh, the last person that walked that trail fell into some crazy fantasy world and had a crab talking to them, and she was trying to warn you off. I mean, yeah, purposely... or yes, that's right. Or, or God just, just had a lightning strike in the path appeared before me. That's the other thing. It sort of has a drug-fueled thing to it, but, you, I mean, it could be, but you clearly did not go for the Hunter S. Thompson drug-fueled, like, stumbling through the forest, right? This is much more yeah. of a man on an adventure. Yeah, it's more of an adventure, and, and frankly, I'm not... I mean, I'm just not a drug guy. Like, I like I like smoking weed once in a while, but I've never done cocaine, I've never done acid, I've never done quaaludes or ecstasy or anything like that. And I, I was a bit of a prude, you know, when I was in high school and I was in college. And, um, you know, I, I get druggy stuff, you know, I sort of understand it, but I don't, I, I think, I think there has to be, it can't just be weird for weird sake. There has to be some sort of just internal narrative that, that, that keeps people interested apart from just sheer weirdness. Jared, were you expecting on this podcast to get a history of Drew McGarry's drug use, which I quite enjoyed, but I wasn't yeah, expecting yeah. that. Yeah. I, I have a few more specific chemicals I'd like to go through. I have a whole yes! shopping list. Yes, of course. Yes, go for it. Uh, and uh, Justin's going to require a urine sample. <laughs> yes, please. It's a drug-free podcast. <laughs> for the sake of our listeners here, because obviously 95%, uh, it's a number that we've done extensive market research on, 95% of our listeners here uh, probably don't read your column uh, columns at various locations. So they may not be familiar with, with you as a writer. I mean, if so, if we're trying to encourage people to go out and, you know, pick up a copy of The Hike, I mean, do you have, like, what what is it kind of like? Are there other writers out there that maybe you've read that kind of do this kind of thing or things you could associate in people's minds, what they might expect if they were to read it? Like an elevator pitch, right? Well, like an elevator pitch, yeah, sure. Like, a, yeah, the uh, X meets X. I will, you know, I will I will say this. I, because, um, because, it's so it, it is. I, I actually have a hard time as, as loud mouth as I am and as much as I self promote all over the place. I, when it comes to selling books, I, I do have a hard time with it. It's cause it's cause you really want people to read it, but you don't want to sound all, you know, arrogant and stuff like that. But this time I really do think I, I really, there was a lot that I wanted to accomplish that I accomplished. It was, it's the first time I did a third person narrative. It's straight. There's no sort of, uh, you know, as, as, as well as Postmortal did, you know, I, I did, I did it in, in the form of blog posts, which is, you know, I, it helped me out when I was writing a novel for the first time because I could break it down into sort of components. But now this is like a real novel and a straight narrative. 
and it goes fast. And all I ever ask when I read a book is that the writer cares about me, the reader, that the writer isn't just trying to impress me or, you know, or, or try to, you know, try to bore me with, to death with like lots of dry facts because they sat in a musty library for 10 years writing it. It's like, does this read super fast? Can this entertain me the way a TV show or a movie would if I'm sitting through it and I'm just flying through? And that was the goal of this. And so far, everyone who's read it has said, yes. Like, like the goal was to make it as, as fast and as sort of timeless as stuff like, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, I mean, really basic sort of, you know, classic narratives that just, that just sweep you along and, and keep you going. So that, that's always been my goal. And I think people, people have pretty much responded to it in that way. They may not like it, but that's okay. I love the nothing with lots of dry facts. I feel like that was another shot at Game of Thrones, but I'm going to ignore it. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there are no facts in Game of Thrones. There's no facts of any kind. They're all made-up facts, but there are a lot of made-up facts. You know, I want to talk because I've read I read all the Steve Larson books, and I and I went through them fast, but it, they're oddly dry. Like it was like, well, you know, there she was from Minsk, and she had been in she had been in army for three years. Like it's a lot. There's a lot. Like the, like a lot of times when you introduce a character, it was just their resume. But for some reason, it worked for me. Well, I think this sort of touches on an earlier part of the discussion. I mean, how much, how much do you think that sports writing has influenced you in this? Because there is, you know, there are the facts, the, the sort of the numbers and the stats. Uh, there's everything that happened. But then there's actually making people care about what happened and making the sport more than just a, a collection of, of numbers and uh, equipment detail. I mean, is that something that prepares you to write fiction? Is that something that prepares you to write speculative fiction, especially? You know, I'm not sure because the way that I got into sports writing was so weird because I did, like, my entry into, like, successful web writing was an NFL comedy blog called Kissing Susie Colbert. It was all NFL satire. And then from there, I started doing like goofy dick joke posts at Deadspin. And then and then I was given actual journalistic assignments at GQ. And so my entry in was so weird, and I had come from an advertising background, that, you know, it, it all ended up sort of blending together, which is kind of good, because you get your sort of own style, and it has lots of, lots of stuff in it, which is good. But I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can answer it directly, except for... Except for the fact that no matter what you're writing about, it needs to it needs to be swift and it needs to it, it needs to have a reason to exist. You know, like I had a friend who would write read scripts like for Hollywood and stuff like that, like for a production company. And it was always it, like his task was always to determine, okay, do I have a reason to keep reading this? And most of the time there wasn't, which is terrifying if you're a prospective writer. Uh, but like that sort of thing. You know, if I'm writing about sports, well, what am I writing about that you didn't already glean from the telecast? Well, I better write something that, you know, about how how I personally reacted that I think is entertaining. Or, you know, I better have talked to somebody who had something interesting to say about it and participated in it. I mean, that's pretty much how it has to go. You know, trying to write a narrative that sweeps away and picks people up. It sort of carries them forward, propels them through the novel. 
so interesting to me now that, I mean, I think it, that's kind of always been true, but it's certainly more true today than it's ever been. I mean, I was having a discussion today with some people in the publishing industry who were discussing about, you know, what we're really competing against is the seven ninety nine Netflix subscription. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Or, or the, you know, or the dead spins of the world that are everything's this bite size, this constant churn of content. You know, a book still today requires an immense amount of attention. And I mean, how are you? I mean, I guess as a blog writer, you're intensely cognizant of that fact as you're writing a novel. Yeah, there's there is literally a trillion different entertainment options that you are competing against. So how are you going to? You know, how are you going to stick out from that? I mean, it's it's almost impossible. And in some ways, you can't even worry about it. You know, I will say this. The nice thing about books is there 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 is a very significant number of people in the population who are dedicated to books and just aren't going to let them fall by the wayside. They're just dedicated readers. They love reading. Schools still, you know, I have kids and, they, and it's still, you know, they better read. You know, they got to read every night. And I am still someone who, if I if I've watched a movie or if I've watched television, I still read to wind down at night. Like I'm still going to read for like 20 minutes before I go to sleep, so that I can sort of get myself ready for bed, you know. And I think that there are still enough people like that where books still still occupy a very specific space for people. And that's not necessarily because I've had the thing where like at night. Like the kids will go to sleep and instead of putting on the TV, you just flip through the iPhone. Like you fuck off on the iPhone for a little bit. And that's that's like your entertainment for the night. And yeah, there's there's all sorts of crazy crowd spacing going on. But I can't even it's it's impossible to plan or figure out how how to even make inroads with all with all that shit. One more kind of writing question, then I have a last question that I that I have to ask you. But the first this one is Sure. Do you consider yourself a novelist now? I mean, ah! obviously, you are, obviously you are a novelist, but y- your career is rather bifurcated at this point. You have lots of things that sure. you do. I mean, moving forward, are, do you identify yourself as somebody who's going to be writing novels for the rest of his life? Or is this one of the things that you're doing? Like if I'm at a party, like, do I introduce myself as a novelist? Oh, if you don't, you I'm don't. highly disappointed. That would be, that would be such <laughs> a, I, I don't. I don't. I, I say writer. And a long time ago, when I started, I, I said blogger at the beginning because I just I just thought writer sounded pretentious. And I was sort of just still goofing around making jokes online and stuff like that. But, you know, if I, I have four books under my belt and I've written a lot of, you know, reported articles and stuff, like that, it's, it's okay to say I'm a writer for a living. And then I write for a magazine and I write for you know, a sports set that has lots of penises on it. I've written some books and stuff like that. I, I tend to dribble out the, I, tr- I tend to dribble out the information. I, I don't think I would say, Ooh, I'm a novelist. I think I, I tell you what, you know what, Justin, if it, if it makes the bestseller list, there's, there's no way I'm not going to put New York times bestselling author before, before every goddamn thing I do. Like, like, like it's Heisman trophy winner. Like I would absolutely do that. But other than that, it's fine. I really, I, I really, I don't value one form over the other. I think writing novels is more satisfying in a certain way, and very cool because I can go into this own into this little world and sort of live in my head for a little bit. But uh, you know, I, I like all the other stuff I do too. So it, it's hard. I don't want to devalue one over the other. 
it's just anything I can do to ma- not make me anything I can do to not look like a pretentious dipshit because there are enough of the, there are enough of those writers. Well, sir, you are in the wrong business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is hundred percent true. Pretension is 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 part of uh, of ah. the uh, publishing game, I think. Sure. But but, I, but we appreciate your uh, your dissembling. I, I want to ask you this. I read. I was doing some research for this podcast, and I can't help but ask you like a super big Quisker question that has nothing yeah. to do with sports or nothing to do with uh, your books. But you wrote an article back in 2014. Yeah. About Daniel Snyder and the Redskins name. Yes. Where you essentially said like, look, we can obviously it's odious, but. It is. It's never going to change, and here's why. And you said uh, Daniel Snyder is addicted to persecution, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a fantastic turn of phrase. And in a in a post Donald Trump world that we exist in today, where uh, everyone seems like where everyone is addicted to persecution. Well, that's what I, it seems like. This addiction to persecution is everywhere. Like it's something that we seem to have. Like uh, whether it's it's the media or the fact that people can express themselves on the internet. I mean. How bad are we now when it gets to this this constant addiction to persecution? And where did you come up with that term? I, I just think it's a fascinating phrase. Yeah, I think it's I think it's proliferated. I think yeah, I think Trump is sort of the the bellwether of it because because no matter what he does, he just stands up and he just says, "I've been treated very unfairly." Like 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 this rich guy who got rich through all sorts of ill gotten means, saying he he was treated unfairly. Like it's 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 a hilarious bit of a bit a bit of jujitsu. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think with, you know, the stuff that has happened this week, uh, stuff that you would think would be inarguable about, you know, restraints and violence being bad and stuff like that. But people will, people will take the other side and people who feel like they're being accused of wrongdoing or accused of supporting the wrong people will turn it and say, well, I'm the one being uh, persecuted. I'm the one being repressed. I'm the one who's being oppressed. And it's just this sort of, you know, it's, it's very egotistical and it, and it keeps going. And, you know, I think, I think the average sane person can tell who's right and who's wrong, but there are people who just will never, ever, ever stop, you know, sort of distorting things the way they want them in order for it to be, you know, in, in order to, in order to, to garner the most pity possible. Like everyone's a Red Sox fan, basically. <laughs> oh God, what a terrible world. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about that though, is that there's just, you know, if you look in the online spaces and, you know, in the clickbait world or the, you know, the attention grabbing world of the internet, that's what it takes these days, you know, writing crazy headlines. And, but it also seems like, you know, we have a lot of writers out there that, that are addicted to it in their own right. You know, the more commenters they can get taking a dump all over the writer, like that's a good thing, I well, guess. In some ways, you know, it's it's a fascinating paradigm. I mean, I don't mind that. Like, if I get people dumping at me in articles, because that just it's just reflexive. It's how I react. It's if I if I beefed with every Twitter egg who yelled at me, it just it just wouldn't be productive, and it just it would make me a worse person. And I, I think what's missing now, and I, I hate I hate doing any sort of generalized we stuff but i think people are very are not as good natured about ribbing as they used to be and you know i'm one to talk because i've i've said shitty things about people and they might have legitimate gripes about the things that i've said but like people should just be more good natured about okay all right you got me all right you win that argument 
Okay, all right. That's that's funny. You you put the crying Jordan on my on my head. You know, like just take take the loss and move on. And people people really don't do that. Yeah, the concept of doubling down seems to be the uh, yes, yeah, the, and the, that's the thing to do. That's Trump. That's doubling down double, until, un, 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 you know, until it's until it's a pyramid scheme that you know is is higher than fucking Everest. I think that's a perfect opportunity to end. Uh, Jared, do you have anything else that you wanted to uh, quiz the man about? Drew, in in a way that would make any Englishman proud, you've been very self deprecating about your work, um, and. I, I've not read the hike yet, but I really liked the end specialist. It's a nice Thank um, you, sir. sort of high concept contemporary SF novel that's really fast paced, really timely, and I can absolutely see why the why the Clark judges picked it that year. So I wanted to get that on the record since Ooh. you've been very self deprecating. Um which you know, your your honorary tweed is in the mail. Thank you, sir. Yeah, the Brits are really shitty about lauding themselves they're really bad about it yeah oh, we, oh, just to be so class does it's uncanny we're just gonna leave that in there i love I, it's good it's good it's gold it's gold i mean i do i think people hate false modesty too so i mean there are certain things i know i'm pretty good at and there, and there are some things i know i could i could work on you know so i try my best to be as as honest with the self deprecation as I thought, like I know I know there are flaws in that novel, and I think this one's a bit tighter. But hey, who the hell knows? Because I've been I've been wrong about my expectations for books before. So, fuck it. all right. Well, the book is out on August second in the United States. I assume it's also out on August second in the United Kingdom. Maybe yes, maybe no. I uh, I'll put it in the listeners' hands to determine that. But it's certainly out in the U.S. on uh, August second. And uh, I would encourage everybody to go pick it out. We appreciate you coming on, Drew. Anytime, man. All right. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>